Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, January 19th, 2024, the 1094th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So yesterday we talked about the intellectual and moral calculations, the discussions and thoughts we will inevitably have over the course of the next nine and a half months as we lead in to the November 5th, 2024 presidential election in the United States of America. The single most important thing that has ever happened and will ever happen. 
if you think all of this is just about who the American president is. And of course, it's not all just about that. So this is just a moment in the process, an important moment, one that could potentially see Donald Trump finally get justice for what happened four years prior. But it is just a moment and we have to carry on after that. And between now and that point, it is not the only thing that we need to focus on. We have plenty to do and focus on between now and then in terms of spreading the truth and speeding along this great awakening. And then after that, the big projects still need to happen in reality, and those will require people's engagement and support. So there is a lot to look forward to that doesn't include obsessing over things like ballot harvesting or pretending that our elections really are legitimate in order to not discourage people from not voting as if everyone else is a child. Now, during that discussion, I talked about the administrative state, this massive bureaucracy that serves under the executive branch and essentially makes not only all our laws, but all of these various rules and regulations and taxes, these choices about who and what to fund or not fund. We have thousands and thousands of career government apparatchiks deciding how we should live, and they were never empowered to do that, certainly not through any constitutional means. So today I want to talk about some of Donald Trump's priorities in his next term as the mainstream media and the regime intelligentsia are coping with the fact that Donald Trump has not gone anywhere and he is going to be throwing wrenches into all of their plans. The media is essentially focus group testing various political strategies and various messaging strategies to deal with this next term of Donald Trump as president. And it's to the point where we essentially have an entirely new genre in mainstream journalism, which is just Trump return panic. And so let's start with the intersection of the tearing down of the administrative state and panic over Trump's return. This is Ruth Marcus from yesterday, January 18th in the Washington Post. Now, before we get started, let's see who Ruth Marcus is. Ruth Marcus is an opinion writer for the Washington Post. Obviously, she is a previous finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for her commentary. She is extremely liberal. She is married to a man named John Leibowitz, who was Barack Obama's FTC commissioner, Yale undergrad, and then Harvard Law. So this woman has all the markers for a top-level regime communist. So to the Washington Post, courts have long deferred to federal rulemakers. That might end soon. The most important case before the Supreme Court this term might not be about Donald Trump. It might be about herring, specifically about whether herring fishermen must pay for government observers on their boats to prevent overfishing. Even more specifically, the case is about whether the conservative dominated court is prepared to throw overboard a 40 year old precedent that instructs 
federal judges to defer to administrative agencies in interpreting the laws they enforce. When that earlier case, Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council, was decided in 1984 at the height of the Reagan administration's anti-regulatory push, conservatives cheered it as a way of reining in activist judges and preventing them from substituting their own policy preferences for those of federal regulators. So there were regime supporting conservatives back in 1984, too. Wow. Shocking. But as the federal judiciary grew more conservative and the administrative state more sprawling, Chevron deference, as it became known, emerged as a major target for economic and legal conservatives. Two of Trump's three Supreme Court nominees, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, were chosen in significant part because of their hostility to the ruling which other conservatives have come to view as an intolerable barrier to their efforts to dismantle an out-of-control federal bureaucracy. It's not just that it's an intolerable barrier, it's that it's unconstitutional. It is what enables the sprawling administrative state, something we were never supposed to have. If our politicians, who lie about everything, who invert everything, stopped pretending that we were in a free market capitalist society and just simply started calling it communism, nothing would have to change. And everyone would simply be like, oh, yeah, we definitely live under communism. That's what this is. We believe we live in a free market capitalist society simply because that has been marketed to us. We know the world economics slogan for the future you will own nothing and you will be happy. Well, in that situation, everyone would be given the same things. You would have three pairs of the same pants and seven of the same shirts and one pair of shoes and everyone else would have that same set of things. As an example, no one would have any problem in understanding, hey, that's communism. Well, we are already in that place when it comes to ideas. And one of those ideas that we are given, hey, here is your idea about our economic system. That's that we are a free market capitalist system. That was the only idea on offer and everyone repeats it as if it's true, even though it's just a slogan and utterly meaningless. But let's get back to the Amazon Washington Post. Now, the court's conservative majority is poised to do away with Chevron or at the very least, further defang a precedent that's been cut back in recent years. In oral arguments in two cases that stretched past three and a half hours on Wednesday, the justices resorted to technical jargon about Skidmore deference, a reference to a 1944 case that adopted a milder form of respecting agency views and whether to kisserize Chevron a reference to a 2019 ruling in which the court constrained but did not outright eliminate a different form of deference. But the fundamental question was clear. Who decides? From the liberal point of view, unelected judges or regulators with expertise and accountability? From the conservative vantage point, judges constitutionally empowered to say what the law is or unelected bureaucrats? Now, let's just take a pause to understand how thoroughly retarded liberal intellectuals actually are. So 
from the liberal point of view, we don't want unelected judges. They're not the people to decide these rules and regulations. What we want are regulators with expertise and accountability. Now, I don't know what that accountability is because for all intents and purposes, they can't be fired. And that's what some of these Supreme Court cases she's talking about deal with. But let's break that down one step further because she presented the bad side, unelected judges with the good side from the liberal point of view, of course, regulators with accountability and expertise. But here's the thing. Those regulators aren't elected either. So she's saying that the bad thing about the judges is that they are unelected. But the unelectedness doesn't matter when it comes to the thousands and thousands and thousands of federal bureaucrats who she is describing as regulators with expertise and accountability. Now, that is preposterously stupid. You have defined from the liberal point of view that it's bad to be unelected and then promoted the unelected. And let's go one step further. Our elections are illegitimate. So all of them are unelected. And when we really get down to it, well, everybody who was appointed by an illegitimate president, those people are going to have to all be jobless. Hey, sorry, commies. You could have become whistleblowers and then you'd be just fine. But instead, you just continued right along helping the regime. So what do you expect from us? Losing your job because you are employed as a communist bureaucrat is literally the least that can possibly happen. You should all be praying that that is the extent of it. But hey, we know you're all godless communists. The court's three liberal justices emphasize the limits of judicial authority and more important capacity. Why shouldn't the entity with all of the qualities, expertise, experience, on-the-ground execution, knowledge of consequences, why shouldn't deference be given to that entity, asked Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Justice Elena Kagan, citing, quote, the countless policy issues that are going to confront this country in the years and decades ahead, end quote, put the stakes in stark terms. Will courts be able to decide these issues as to things they know nothing about? Courts that are completely disconnected from the policy process, from the political process, and that just don't have any expertise in an area, she asked? Or are people in agencies going to do that? That's what this case is about. Actually, no, that's not what this case is about. And that is not what it means to put something in stark terms. She actually loaded an entirely different and separate discussion onto putting it in stark terms. She did the opposite. She obfuscated. She made the issue more muddy. It's like these communists are just all upside down, or maybe just maybe they invert absolutely everything because they're evil. The case is actually about whether or not all of those federal agencies are allowed to make laws when the Constitution specifically says that the lawmaking should be done by the legislative branch and whether or not the legislative branch can completely abdicate its duty by delegating its authority to make law to unelected bureaucrats. Liberals pretend that this issue is about 
whether the EPA or some judge is going to set the standard for how much carbon monoxide can be emitted. But that isn't it at all. The judge's decision will be whether or not there is allowed constitutionally to be an EPA that makes these sort of decisions. That is an entirely different issue, and the obfuscation is obvious. But hey, how about those Obama judges? How about our first female Hispanic Supreme Court justice being stupid and our first lesbian justice being stupid? Oh, thank you, Barack Hussein Obama. Was that enough of the viewpoint of the brain dead liberal feminists currently illegitimately seated on the Supreme Court? Well, no, you're leaving one out. You are leaving out Joe Biden's woman of color, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who just so happened to take it easy on pedophiles in her judicial career before ascending to the Supreme Court. The approach adopted by Chevron added Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson is, quote, doing the very important work of helping courts stay away from policymaking and so Help me understand why, if we do away with Chevron's framework, we won't have a problem of courts actually making a policy decision. Well, because all of those decisions, to the extent that any of them can be made, and truthfully, none of them really can, but to the extent that any of them can constitutionally be made, those will be made in the legislature. And because everybody knows that that's what the Constitution describes, there would never be a scenario where an unelected government bureaucrat from the administrative state would be going to court about their ability to set regulatory standards. The issue would never come up. That's why you wouldn't be hearing about it, Katanji. But of course, you knew that or you should have known that. But then again, we've certainly seen enough nomination hearings for federal judgeships to know that many of these judges actually don't know anything. And think about what we were talking about yesterday, prioritizing practical logistical concerns over moral principled concerns and how that's always a bad thing. And consider the legal argument being presented here to keep the current system in place. They are saying if you change the system, then in the future, the courts might end up setting a regulatory standard. Whereas the other side's argument is the Constitution specifically does not allow this. The practical implications don't matter because it's not allowed. It is about getting down to the roots of an issue. The liberals are arguing that whether or not it is allowed they need to be able to do it because, according to them, something bad will happen if they're not allowed to do it. Therefore, regardless of what was intended in the Constitution, they must be allowed to do it. Remember how years ago people told me that I couldn't call this stuff communism? What exactly is it? What exactly is it? They don't care about the Constitution. Their argument is we need to be able to do this thing because otherwise something bad might happen. What is the bad thing that would happen if we just couldn't set a regulatory standard for some ridiculous environmental related issue? There should not be an EPA. And I think that not long into Donald Trump's term, there won't be an EPA. 
There is talk of them going after the administrative state from day one. That means that everything is going to be in place to immediately dismantle the federal bureaucracy on day one. And when Donald Trump jokes about being a dictator on day one, I think that he is needling the communists on exactly that. He is just kind of twisting the blade a little bit. Without the federal administrative state, they can't get their people paid and they can't set all of these rules that govern how people live their lives and how companies conduct business. We are being run by bureaucrats and planners, and it's time to stop pretending that we have elected representatives doing our business. They are not doing our business. They are facilitating the business of the bureaucrats and handlers. They are not paid by corporations to get laws passed. They're paid to sell the regime's agenda to us. The conservative justices assess the risk differently. As they see it, Chevron lets Congress punt hard choices to unelected bureaucrats, allows agencies to flip-flop from one administration to another, and reduces judges to the role of unthinking handmaidens to regulators. Conservatives have inflated the Chevron ruling to the status of constitutional pestilence, and it is. Roman Martinez, representing one set of fishing boat owners at Wednesday's argument, said the ruling, quote, threatens individual liberty. Paul Clement, the former solicitor general representing other boat owners, termed it an, quote, egregiously wrong decision that just gets it wrong on the basis of separation of powers. During Wednesday's arguments, Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr., <laughs> I love when they get that whole name out there. Very, very important. Where is Sonia Sotomayor's middle name? Where is Elena Kagan's? Where is Katanji Brown Jackson's? And you might say, hey, it's in there. Her middle name is Brown. But I think you're wrong. I think she has two last names. <laughs> the world may never know. But back to the article, John Roberts wondered how much the issue mattered given Chevron's reduced influence in recent years. Justice Amy Coney Barrett worried that overruling the case was, quote, inviting a flood of litigation, reopening settled questions. But the other conservative justices seemed eager to get on with the gutting. At times, their leading questions appeared aimed at much at hastening its demise as at weighing the consequences. Oh, they were asking leading questions. It's so unfair what they're doing. Their jobs and stuff. Would you agree that one of the reasons why Chevron was originally so popular was concern that judges were allowing their policy views, consciously or unconsciously, to influence their interpretation of the statutes in question, prompted Justice Samuel A. Alito Jr.? Why was that fear unfounded? Why do you think now that the fear was unfounded? Gorsuch lamented Chevron's toll on, quote, the immigrant, the veteran seeking his benefits, the Social Security disability applicant, conveniently omitting that the campaign to overrule the decision, including the cases currently before the high court, has been funded by well-heeled conservative groups, including the Koch network. The Kochs are globalists. But the question is of massive constitutional concern. So who cares who's funding it? All that matters is what the Constitution says and how we're going to interpret that in a principled fashion. 
The Supreme Court has invoked Chevron some 70 times to uphold agency actions. Lower courts have relied on the case 17,000 times. So it is not too early to consider the practical consequences of abandoning that approach. Solicitor General Elizabeth B. Prologar, representing the Biden administration, warned of chaos and disarray with thousands of decisions open to challenge and, quote, different rules in different parts of the country. I don't know. I feel like we could straighten that out over time. You just can't do it. You got agencies in your state just like these federal agencies. Well, turns out they can't do it. So everybody's fired. And now stop making laws and rules and regulations outside the bounds of the legislature who is constitutionally empowered to do that where no one else is. But back to the article, let's conclude that might understate things. Prologar needs to be circumspect and polite about the politicization of the federal courts. I don't. Oh, Ruth Marcus, you are just bringing the heat. Here's what will happen if federal judges are freed from having to defer to agency interpretations. During Democratic administrations, conservatives challenging agency action will race to friendly conservative courts to file challenges. During Republican administrations, the opposite will happen. That venue shopping already occurs, but overruling Chevron will make it much worse. Oh, it's so cute. She still thinks there's going to be all of these agencies. And to the detriment of the courts and the rule of law, you're saying blow up one doctrine of humility, Chevron deference, blow up another doctrine of humility, courts reluctance to overrule precedent, and then expect anybody to think that the courts are acting like courts. Kagan told Clement, oh, wow, what a powerful legal mind. Elena Kagan is brilliant. I just realized it after reading that sentence. I thought, oh, this person is retarded, but nope, brilliant. Kagan's prognosis is grim, but not overblown. Unfortunately, it's not likely her conservative colleagues will heed the warning now that they have the votes. Oh, man, that's too bad. That's so unfortunate. They've been warned again and again and again, and they might not heed those warnings strictly because they have a majority and that majority's purpose is to do things exactly like this. It's like they're just inflicting societal trauma on purpose. So that is some fairly glorious panic. Donald Trump and his MAGA supporters, we will all be, of course, framed as Nazis. And then when Donald Trump dismantles the federal bureaucracy and removes entire agencies and all the employees in them, he will be framed as, first of all, just an evil man for leaving so many people unemployed, whereas just days prior, they had jobs that they could not be fired from and pensions that would fill their bank accounts with taxpayer money for the rest of their lives. But that will only appeal to people's practical concerns. They'll feel bad for these government employees, but most people really aren't fans of government employees anyway. Now, I want to be clear that there are certainly some decent government employees out there. They have different interpretations of what government's purpose is than we do. And their interpretations have developed over time because of this society that we live in. Certain 
elements of what our government does are now expected as parts of what a government should do, even though they're totally unconstitutional. And so we kind of need to relearn and rethink what the government is supposed to do in the first place. There are also just people there who have learned some skill that is applicable to what the government does in reality, regardless of whether it should or shouldn't do it. It is doing it. And there are jobs that need to be filled. There are people with those skill sets who want good jobs, job security, the ability to raise a family. And so they take those jobs and they work hard to do well and perform well at those jobs because they're good people. And so it's unfortunate that many of those people will no longer have those cushy careers and that those cushy careers in many cases just won't exist anymore. We can feel some sympathy for those people, but it's also important to remember that people who were put into those positions in these same processes, these were the people who said that anyone who doesn't get vaccinated should lose their job and career. These are the people who clapped along. While states were locking down, the people who believed that Donald Trump was being irresponsible for suggesting that states should reopen. No one batted an eye. No government bureaucrat batted an eye when my career, for instance, was ended with a snap of Gavin Newsom's fingers. I had put in 15 years establishing myself in an industry that got shut down the moment California locked down. Now, has it returned to some extent? Yes, it has, but years later, and it's far more dystopian now than it even was then. And I realized my career was already pretty dystopian by the time it stopped in 2020. These are also people of the same political persuasion as those who suggested that coal miners whose careers were ended because of Green New Deal environmental policies could simply learn to code. So apologies, federal employees. But as I've said many times now, you've had years of warning. You've had years of opportunity to understand that this is coming. It's wise to develop your skill set and prepare your resume to find gainful employment in the private sector like everyone else. The agenda these people have been implementing calls for the wiping out of entire industries. Some of that is just due to climate. But much of it is due to AI. These are parts of their agenda that promise to put millions and millions and millions of people out of work. These are the people, and we'll get to some World Economic Forum stuff later, but these are the people who go along with Yuval Noah Harari when he says that there is an entire class of useless eaters on this planet, and we need to figure out what to do with them. The same people who are pushing depopulation programs. It is unfortunate to sweep up all the good and decent people who are working hard in good faith because they believe that they are helping the government make American society better. It is unfortunate that they get swept up with the rest, but the federal bureaucracy has been pushing this global regime agenda forward for decades. There isn't a noticeable good part of it, and to the extent that any part of it is necessary, those parts would show themselves as necessary through natural processes once it's all been eliminated. We are going to have some period of adjustment no matter what. It is better to strip things down to their roots and know what needs to be brought back than to have some discussion among elites and illegitimate politicians 
about why we need the EPA and all of its component parts or why we need the Department of Education and all its component parts. When the truth is the government shouldn't be doing any of these things. But let's continue with panic over Trump's return and Trump's plans for when he is once again publicly recognized as the president of the United States of America. This is from the New York Times on Tuesday. Trump signals plan to go after intelligence community in document case. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump said in court papers filed on Tuesday night that they intended to place accusations that the intelligence community was biased against Mr. Trump at the heart of their defense against charges, accusing him of illegally holding on to dozens of highly sensitive classified documents after he left. So the whole Mar-a-Lago raid case, part of Trump's defense is his claim that the intelligence community was biased against him. Ooh, what a conspiracy theorist. The intelligence community biased against a president that was putting America first and not doing the bidding of the global regime. How could it even happen? I know it's unbelievable. The lawyers also indicated that they were planning to defend Mr. Trump by seeking to prove that the investigation of the case was, quote, politically motivated and biased. The court papers filed in federal district court in Fort Pierce, Florida, gave the clearest picture yet of the scorched earth legal strategy that Mr. Trump is apparently planning to use in fighting the classified documents indictment handed up over the summer. So scorched earth, Donald Trump is going to tell everybody about what the intelligence community really does. And to this writer, Alan Fewer of the New York Times, that is a scorched earth strategy. Donald Trump is so desperate to not be put in prison for something he didn't do that he's willing to let the country know about what the intelligence community really does do. Oh, that bastard. While the 68-page filing was formally a request by Mr. Trump's lawyers to the office of the special counsel, Jack Smith, to provide them with reams of additional information that they believe can help them fight the charges, it often read more like a list of political talking points than a brief of legal arguments. Criminal defendants routinely make such requests in what are known as motions to compel discovery. But many of the requests in Mr. Trump's filing appeared intended to paint Mr. Trump as the victim of the spy agencies that once served him and of purported collusion between the Biden administration and prosecutors who have filed some of the four cases he now faces. So again, it is out of bounds. This is a scorched earth strategy for Donald Trump to motion the court to compel discovery. That means have the court tell Jack Smith's special counsel's office that they need to produce information to Donald Trump and his attorneys that they can then use as part of their defense. And they are concerned about the intelligence community's biases, and they think they know where evidence of those biases may be. And so they want the special counsel to produce that information because it's important for their defense, which is entirely rational and natural. It's principled. It's moral. If the intelligence community is, in fact, operating against a duly elected president, 
the president should actually be able to use that as part of his defense. They're not supposed to do that. And if all of the news of the last few weeks about Jack Smith's office and Fannie Willis's office, all the crazy stuff happening with Letitia James and that lunatic Angeron up in New York, if all of that is representative of reality and it is being communicated accurately to us, then Donald Trump has every reason to believe that the illegitimate Biden administration was involved as well. Compelling discovery from these entities is necessary as part of his defense. What happens if Jack Smith can't produce it after being compelled to produce it? Well, then you'd have to wonder, does Jack Smith actually have this information? And if Jack Smith doesn't, who does? And if this information does not exist, why not? What is the illegitimate Biden administration. Is it even a real administration? At some point, you think these questions might actually come up in reality because it turns out it's not a real administration. And who's been saying that for all these many years? Well, that's us and basically no one else. Let's continue. That portrait was in keeping with Mr. Trump's persistent refrain that the so-called deep state has been out to get him nearly from the moment he entered public service. Such allegations have proved politically useful to Mr. Trump, even if his evidence in support of them has often been dubious or lacking. And that is hilarious. That is one of the strategies used by people who are experiencing total inversion within the false reality. They think that they are calling small bits of doubt into various claims, a series of claims. Let's say that Trump has made 50 claims about deep state influence. And yes, I understand that there are many times that, but let's say there are 50. And in 10 of those cases, according to Alan Fewer or Foyer or Fuhrer or however his name is pronounced, 10 of them are on what he considers dubious grounds. And one of those claims, Alan Foyer will not agree that there is any evidence whatsoever. Again, from his perspective, not from anyone else's perspective, from his perspective, that to him means that it is often the case that Trump's evidence is dubious or lacking, as he just wrote. And for someone like him, that means, and he's communicating this outwardly, you should ignore all of these claims from Donald Trump because certain claims, in his view, are not substantiated enough. He is making the case that one rotten apple, in his view, is enough to destroy the entire apple cart when what he's really dealing with is a cart of brand new apples and some aren't totally ripe yet. Total inversion in each and every aspect. That is what they go for. Read what they say. Break apart the elements of each claim. Think about what the actual opposite in each of its elements would be in each one of those elements and see if that is reflective of the empirical observable reality. More often than not, it will be. Their inversion is total. They take each one of the individual elements separately, invert it, and then combine into the big picture claim. And then they say things like, there is no deep state pursuing Donald Trump because his claims are often dubious or lacking in evidence from the perspective of these people. 
And that, of course, is the same thing they do with elections. They take each and every one of the claims of fraud. They figure out some way to cast some doubt on it. And once they have casted some doubt on it, not even dispositive doubt, just doubt, any doubt, once they have cast a doubt, they say, oh, no, well, that claim's not proven. And they do that for all the claims. And then they say the big claim, Joe Biden really did receive 81 million real lawful American votes because all of the claims to the contrary are doubtful at best. But back to the New York Times, the nation's spy services took center stage in the papers. Given that intelligence officials are likely to testify at trial about what Mr. Trump's lawyers call their subjective assessments of the more than 30 classified documents that the former president is accused of removing from the White House. Now, it seems like they're suggesting that Jack Smith's plan is to bring in a bunch of former intelligence officials and ask them what they think is contained or written in these documents and why it's important that Donald Trump not have them. One of the ways in which President Trump will challenge that testimony is by demonstrating that the intelligence community has operated with a bias against him, dating back to at least the 2019 whistleblower complaint relating to his call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Two of Mr. Trump's lawyers, Todd Blanche and Christopher Kyes, wrote referring to the incident that resulted in Mr. Trump's first impeachment trial. Mr. Blanche and Mr. Kyes said they planned to use, quote, evidence relating to analytic bias harbored by the intelligence community, end quote, to undermine the prosecution's contention that the documents Mr. Trump took with him were connected to issues of national defense. Mr. Smith's team will have to prove such connections for jurors to find the former president guilty of violating the Espionage Act, the central statute he is accused of breaking. While the specific contents of the documents remain unknown, the indictment says that some are related to nuclear secrets and military plans against U.S. adversaries. The documents, which came from several intelligence agencies, were among the most highly classified records the federal government had, court papers say. Damn, that must really suck that the regime doesn't have control of intelligence this important. If only they hadn't stolen all of those elections, then they might be able to have legitimate power and then have access to these documents. Shucks. Mr. Trump's legal team has persistently derided all of the cases he is facing as partisan attacks against him as he mounts his third bid for the White House. And in the filing on Tuesday night, Mr. Blanche and Mr. Kyes asked Judge Aileen Cannon, who is overseeing the classified documents case, to force Mr. Smith to give them, quote, any documents and communications reflecting bias and or political animus toward President Trump by members of his own prosecution team. Now, that might be a strange thing to ask for unless you knew that evidence existed. Now, as I've said countless times, I think that all of this is a public facing stage show for something much more real and tangible going on in the background. Now, we don't have a ton of access to what that is all the time, and the mainstream media certainly isn't going to tell us about it. But a fundamental assumption that I work with in my thinking all the time is that both sides have or had access to absolutely all of the information for a very long time. And I also think that it's at least possible there's some evidence for it 
that one side's access to all of the information has been cut off. Now, that's not necessary because if both sides have all of the information and they have an equal opportunity and equal access to communicate with the public, then the side telling the truth is going to win because what they say will better map onto the reality that people are experiencing in the world. And the false reality will simply drop away at that point. So it could be as simple as that. It could be both sides have all of the information on absolutely everybody. And the chess moves are being made with one side deploying truth and the other side not truth will win that each and every time on a long enough timeline. But it's also possible that the other side just doesn't have the access to information that they used to have that our side, for instance, could have developed new technologies that would prevent the other side from intercepting communications. And there is at least some reason to believe that that is exactly what's happening with Starlink and the rest of it. That is a different conversation. There's also ample evidence to point to to support the case that the illegitimate Biden administration does not have access to intelligence. They never seem to know absolutely anything whenever there is any military related incident happening in the world. They seem generally to be somewhere behind the mainstream media. And while the mainstream media still might be pumping out intelligence community propaganda, they are no longer able to sell their version of the story as true. So when people in the illegitimate Biden administration regurgitate all that information, it has already been refuted in the public mindset. So let's reset quickly before we continue. Trump and his team of lawyers are filing a motion to compel discovery for Jack Smith's special counsel team to produce evidence indicating intelligence community bias against Donald Trump, the illegitimate Biden administration working as part of this prosecution and evidence that Jack Smith's own prosecutorial team in the special counsel's office is also biased against Donald Trump. And Trump's team believes there is evidence for all of this that can and should be produced. So let's continue. The filing additionally asked for information about one of Mr. Smith's chief deputies, Thomas P. Windham, who has taken the lead in prosecuting the other federal case that Mr. Trump is facing, one in which he stands accused of plotting to overturn his 2020 loss to Joseph R. Biden Jr. In a previously undisclosed detail, the filing noted that Mr. Windham had also played a sizable role in prosecuting the classified documents case. Mr. Trump's lawyers noted, for example, that the National Archives, which set in motion the document investigation after it discovered sensitive records in a trove of materials that Mr. Trump returned to its office after leaving the White House, had reached out to Mr. Windham in February 2022. The lawyers said that Mr. Windham, aside from the interviews he conducted during the election interference case, also conducted 29 interviews in the classified document case. The filing also asked for additional information about a security clearance from the Energy Department that Trump somehow maintained well after leaving office. That quote unquote inconvenient truth, as his lawyers described it, could help Mr. Trump defend himself against charges that he illegally held on to at least one of the documents in the case, a record related to nuclear weaponry. 
So we are finding out that Trump somehow held on to his high level security clearance from the Energy Department. Now, could that be Q clearance? Well, it certainly could be. Do we know it is from this? No, we don't. But gosh, that would be so interesting if they have to go out and admit that publicly. What in the world would former president Donald J. Trump be doing with a high level security clearance from the Energy Department when he's totally not president anymore? Gosh, it's so interesting. I wonder why New York Times reporters never follow up on that to get the answers to that question. I mean, it's been months since we knew about that. Why haven't they figured it out? Gosh, it's so frustrating being a journalist. Oh, just bashing your head into a brick wall every night. Oh, we can't find why Trump has this clearance. It probably doesn't matter. Let's just still pretend he's so indicted. I mean, Trump's lawyers are basically just spiking the football at that point. They're like sauntering into the end zone, high stepping, calling Trump's security clearance from the Energy Department an inconvenient truth for the prosecution. They're basically saying, hey, even if you get rid of all the presidential stuff, he's still allowed to see this. But then also think about this. So. Joe Biden, the very real president of the United States of America, for sure, believes that Donald Trump has committed insurrection against the country and a whole slew of other crimes. And despite that, Joe Biden, the most patriotic and real president that America has ever seen, did not bother removing Trump's Energy Department clearance. Wonder why? Wonder why Biden didn't remove Trump's clearance. Gosh, I guess it's a mystery. <sighs> Being a journalist is tough. Maybe the New York Times will tell us one day why Joe Biden didn't do that, even though Donald Trump is accused of all these grave crimes. The Biden administration doesn't even take away his security clearances, and Donald Trump just gets to fly around the country on his big Air Force One style plane just making speeches and leading the actual opposition movement in this country. It's so weird. Donald Trump, they're going to lock him up for 700 years, but he is still the figurehead of the most powerful resistance in the world. Got it. Makes sense. The filing on Tuesday night was similar in tone and substance to a discovery request that Mr. Trump's lawyers made in November in the election interference case, which is unfolding in federal district court in Washington. And that filing, the lawyers suggested that they plan to question the findings of the intelligence community that the 2020 election was conducted fairly. And that was only one report from the intelligence community. They also indicated that they intended to raise a host of distractions as part of their defense, saying they wanted to drag unrelated matters like the criminal prosecution of Mr. Biden's son, Hunter, into the case. Oh, they're raising distractions as part of their defense. Or is that just how you want to pretend things are, Alan Fuhrer? And check out how important Alan Foyer's job is, according to The New York Times. Alan Foyer covers extremism and political violence for the Times, focusing on the criminal cases involving the January 6th attack on the Capitol and against former President Donald Trump. Oh, extremism and political violence. And he's 
focusing on a false flag event and the regime's prosecution of its political opponent. Once again, total inversion. Let's continue with mainstream panic over Trump's return. These articles are especially hilarious because they all have to accept some hopes that were dashed for these people and what that means for the future. They are simultaneously coping and panicking. I mean, it's just beautiful. This is NBC News from Sunday. Fears grow that Trump will use the military in dictatorial ways if he returns to the White House. Donald Trump is sparking fears among those who understand the inner workings of the Pentagon that he would convert the nonpartisan U.S. military into the muscular arm of his political agenda as he makes comments about dictatorship and devalues the checks and balances that underpin the nation's two century old democracy. Oh, the drama, the nonpartisan military, the nonpartisan military. I've never heard the military described as partisan in any way, nor have I heard it described as nonpartisan. But who cares? We know what they use this word for. When they say that something is nonpartisan, they mean that everybody uses it equally. They expect their audience will be totally convinced by the controlled opposition dynamic that's been set up for them. It's red versus blue. Republican versus Democrat, right versus left. Everyone believes that is what's real. So if something is nonpartisan, that means it's advantaging neither the Democrats or the Republicans. And they can get away with saying that because the truth is it's benefiting the Democrats and the Republicans just as much in the same ways. The Uniparty left and the Uniparty right are working toward the same goals. So think about how they're framing this. Once Trump gets into office, the military will be what? A Republican military at that point? Is that how it'll become partisan? Oh, no, you're going to frame it as only Donald Trump's military. He is a dictator and he has then seized the command of the military for himself, which is an unusual picture to paint for these people, considering that Donald Trump would only be able to do that if he is elected overwhelmingly by the American people. Or at least that's true as a function of the surface level interpretation where Joe Biden really is the president and our elections are real and blah, blah, blah. And it obviously ignores the possibility that the American people en masse would be pushing for Donald Trump to do what they're panicking about him doing. A circle of appointees independent of Trump's political operation steered him away from ideas that would have pushed the limits of presidential power in his last term, according to books they've written and testimony given to Congress. Most were gone by the end. In a new term, many former officials worried that Trump would instead surround himself with loyalists unwilling to say no. And it's, again, hilarious that they think loyalists would be unwilling to say no so as to not anger Donald Trump when anyone who is a loyalist is just 100%, yeah, go Trump. Please, by all means, do all of this stuff. Any of us would gladly go work for Donald Trump and implement this agenda. I would be willing to say no. I would just have no reason to do it because I actively support this agenda and so will the majority of the American people. 
Now, this is quite a long article, so I just want to go through kind of the introductory section and then hit a couple of pieces here and there. So let's continue. Trump has raised fresh questions about his intentions if he regains power by putting forward a legal theory that a president would be free to do nearly anything with impunity, including assassinate political rivals, so long as Congress can't muster the votes to impeach him and throw him out of office. And of course, this is a dramatization of Trump's pursuit of presidential immunity in the scope of these indictments. The courts are deciding right now the extent of presidential immunity. Trump asking the court to weigh in on that important question is not somehow a subversion of our Constitution. The framing of this stuff, it's absurd. These people are either stupid or just so dishonest. And it could be both, to be honest. Now, bracing for Trump's potential return, a loose-knit network of public interest groups and lawmakers is quietly devising plans to try to foil any efforts to expand presidential power, which could include pressuring the military to cater to his political needs. So a resistance to a future Donald Trump is rising up right now. But we cannot call that a subversion or a soft coup or anything like that. They're not undermining a duly elected president in his role as commander in chief during a time of ongoing war. They're actually just working to restrain someone who would be president, but shouldn't be. The funny part is that when they plot a coup in public like this, as they have done in multiple cycles before, people become so accustomed to these ideas that they don't even recognize there's something seriously wrong going on. Those taking part in the effort told NBC News they are studying Trump's past actions and 2024 policy positions so that they will be ready if he wins in November. That involves preparing to take legal action and send letters to Trump appointees, spelling out consequences they'd face if they undermine constitutional norms. These people are bonkers. We're already starting to put together a team to think through the most damaging types of things that Trump might do so that we're ready to bring lawsuits if we have to, said Mary McCord, executive director of the Institution for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law. What? Why is Georgetown Law taking on a duly elected president of the United States? Don't they receive federal funding? Thank goodness we're not dealing with communism. I mean, it would be so much worse. Part of the aim is to identify like-minded organizations and create a coalition to challenge Trump from day one. Those taking part in the discussion said, some participants are combing through policy papers being crafted for a future conservative administration. They're also watching the interviews that Trump allies are giving to press for clues to how a Trump sequel would look. Other participants include Democracy Forward, an organization that took the Trump administration to court more than a hundred times during his administration and Protect Democracy, an anti-authoritarian group. So let's take a second and take a little look at these groups. Protect Democracy is short for United to Protect Democracy, and that is all under the umbrella of the Protect Democracy Project, a group that petitioned for, at one point, the resignation 
of Attorney General Bill Barr. So that's interesting. The Protect Democracy Project has received funding from the left-wing Hewlett Foundation. The breakdown of the Protect Democracy Project on InfluenceWatch.org also notes that one of its advisors is a woman named Mona Charon, who is a close friend of none other than the Washington Post's Ruth Marcus, according to Ruth Marcus's Wikipedia page. And the other group, Democracy Forward, is chaired by none other than Mark Elias, the Democrats' lawfare superstar, the man who led the legal effort to make sure that the stolen election of 2020 and many other stolen elections are upheld, a man who used to be with Perkins Coie, a key player in this now nine-year-long soft coup against the United States of America. Their board of advisors also features none other than John Podesta and Ron McLean, who was the chief of staff for the first couple years of the illegitimate Joe Biden administration. We are preparing for litigation and preparing to use every tool in the toolbox that our democracy provides to provide the American people an ability to fight back, said Sky Perryman, president of Democracy Forward. We believe this is an existential moment for American democracy, and it's incumbent on everybody to do their part. Now, they are protecting our democracy, and we know what our democracy is. Our democracy is the American Uniparty. It is the American evil twin faction. It is the American version of the global regime's government. They rig elections. They declare themselves the winner. And then whatever they do that follows is thereby democratic. And the only thing that could be democratic and anything that contests what they want to do is anti-democratic. It is actually destroying our democracy, which really is their dictatorship, a total inversion like everything else. America's commander in chief has vast powers at his disposal. Some well-known, others not so much. Some lawmakers and pro-democracy advocates worry that there may be nothing stopping a president from mobilizing the military to intervene in elections, police American streets, or quash domestic protests. And man, that must suck for them to know that all of the normal subversions, all the different ways they cheat and manipulate and undermine and usurp might be confronted by the American military led by commander in chief and president Donald J. Trump. I guess that might cause me to panic too. wary of Trump's staying power. He is running about even with President Joe Biden in the polls. <laughs> That's not true at all. He's running far out ahead of Joe Biden in the polls. Democratic lawmakers already known to be adversarial to Trump are working on a parallel track. Among the least understood tools available to a president is the Insurrection Act. Vaguely worded, it gives a president considerable discretion in deciding what constitutes an uprising and when it is okay to deploy active duty military in response, experts say. Some lawmakers on Capitol Hill worry that Trump might invoke the act to involve the armed forces in the face of domestic protests, or if the midterm elections don't go his way. Oh, wait a second. He's going to use the military in the 2026 midterms? 
What kind of speculative conspiracy theory nonsense is this? You know, it kind of sounds like they are willing to relent and let Donald Trump quote unquote win as long as the elections remain rigged and they are hoping that the elections will be similarly rigged in 2026 so that they can give us one, give us the president, throw them a bone, let them have president Trump again for four more years. We will figure out how to undermine and usurp his authority. We are going to subvert the duly elected president. And part of the way we're going to do that is by having fraudulent elections all around the country so that we have illegitimate congressmen and senators there to undermine the duly elected president. And in 2026, in the midterms, we are just going to steal the whole thing again after we tell the whole country that everyone has realized Donald Trump really is the Nazi we always said he was. They always tell their plans in advance. Now, am I the one speculating and creating a conspiracy theory or is that what they're saying in this article? I mean, how else are you supposed to interpret that? If our elections are fixed by 2026, there is no way anyone would ever consider voting the regime back into power. And so these writers are engaging with a scenario where Donald Trump wins, but they can still steal elections. That is a pretty specific scenario. Senator Richard Blumenthal is crafting a bill that would clarify the act and give Congress and the courts some say in its use. Its chances of passage are slim, given that Republicans control the House and are largely loyal to Trump. Well, for now, Mike Johnson, if he passes another continuing resolution for the February 2nd deadline, as he has just done, will very likely face a motion to vacate. And at that time, I imagine we will see, as I said months ago, a Liz Cheney speakership or maybe an Hakeem Jeffries speakership. So this problem of advancing Richard Blumenthal's changes to the Insurrection Act would go away at that point. The Congress could go ahead and pass those right out in front of the American public, and we could spend the summer arguing about the Insurrection Act. And hey, maybe we should. Bring it on, commies. We're good. We are good. Bring all the issues out. Let's get those lines painted across the field. Let's set all the rules in place. And then let's play ball, baby, because we are not afraid of you. There are an array of horrors that could result from Donald Trump's unrestricted use of the Insurrection Act, Blumenthal said in an interview, probably crying. A malignantly motivated president could use it in a vast variety of dictatorial ways, unless at some point the military itself resisted what they deemed to be an unlawful order. But that places a very heavy burden on the military. Trump's vow to seek retribution on behalf of those he says have been wronged and betrayed has sparked fears that he would use presidential powers more broadly as a cudgel against political foes. And they say this supporting an illegitimate president who is prosecuting his political opponent. They don't even care. Why don't they care? Because they know their audience is retarded and will never actually get upset about that. Compounding the anxiety, he remarked at a Fox News town hall last month that he would be a dictator, though only on his first day in office for the purposes of closing the border and drilling for oil. He later posted on his social media site that he had made that remark in a joking manner, and he certainly did. Everybody could see that. 
More recently, Trump told a Fox News town hall in Iowa that, quote, I'm not going to have time for retribution. Detractors aren't buying it. He's a clear and present danger to our democracy, said William Cohen, a former Republican senator from Maine and defense secretary in the Clinton administration who is not involved in the loose knit network. His support is solid, and I don't think people understand what living in a dictatorship would mean. Oh, no, Kami, we understand. We've seen exactly what it would mean over these last few years. The article repeats the slogans about how Donald Trump and his immunity proceedings, if he were to be granted presidential immunity, could then do all of the most horrifying things ever and no one could hold him accountable. And then the article returns to a discussion of the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection Act is a legal order, and if he orders it, there will be military officers, especially younger men and women, who will follow that legal order, the former official added, and they are talking about a former senior official who served in the Trump administration who is speaking on the condition of anonymity. In policy videos posted to his website, Trump said he would provide record funding for our military. He faulted Biden for enacting woke policies that are hampering military recruitment. And he said he would flush out what he called Marxism, communism and fascists. Trump's allies say there is little doubt that he would make the military a particular focus. They add a quote from Steve Bannon, who says the Pentagon is going to be a super high priority and they have to understand there will be a new sheriff in town. You're going to see a massive house cleaning at the Pentagon. President Trump wants to put in a philosophy of how to win wars. And kudos to Steve Bannon and kudos to Trump. Skipping down again. Trying to pull out of NATO won't be so easy next time around. Last month, Biden signed an $886 billion defense bill that bars a president from unilaterally withdrawing from NATO, a move that could stymie Trump's 2024 campaign pledge to fundamentally reevaluate, quote, NATO's purpose and NATO's mission. And we discussed the signing of that bill. That amendment, I believe, was provided by Marco Rubio. That was in the National Defense Authorization Act. And here's the thing. Joe Biden's not a legitimate president and the Congress and Senate aren't legitimate either. So this actually doesn't matter. Donald Trump is just going to go ahead and withdraw from NATO if that's what he wants to do. A second Trump term would be day after day of constitutional crisis. The Justice Department one day, the Pentagon the next and Homeland Security the next. John Bolton said in an interview, it would be unremitting. The military's role is unique in that soldiers and sailors are trained to obey the commander in chief but are told not to follow illegal orders. Things get murky when an order comes down in the category of lawful, but awful as some military experts describe it. Oh, really? Military experts use the same terminology as they use at Twitter in censorship discussions. Also, that is not murky. If someone in the military does not want to follow a lawful order, it is their responsibility at that point to resign. There were a few of those in the last term, former Trump appointees say, that they managed to beat back. Oh, how about that? They were subverting and ignoring lawful orders from the duly elected commander in chief. And we are supposed to think that this is all good because Donald Trump is actually the biggest threat. It's not these people who subvert our election process 
and the people's representatives. While Trump never invoked the Insurrection Act, as far as you know, he believed the protest in the summer of 2020 surrounding the George Floyd killing made the U.S. look weak and wanted the military to quash the demonstrations, former appointees said. And then they begin suggesting names of people who might possibly be involved in Trump's kind of military branch. They talk about Keith Kellogg, Michael Flynn, Mike Pompeo, and Christopher Miller. And then we get this quote from Mark Esper. The starting point for a second Trump term will be the last year of his first term. The caliber of civilian leaders you would want to see in the Defense Department and elsewhere won't be there. Loyalty will be the attribute Trump will be seeking above all else. He won't pick people like former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis or me who will push back on him. So the question becomes, what harm might occur over four years? Yes, Mark Esper, what harm indeed? So that is quite a lot of panic coming from our mainstream media. They are simultaneously coping with the reality that Donald Trump will be back in office, in quotes. He will be the publicly recognized president of the United States of America again. And at that point, he is going to begin executing the mandate for which the American people are electing him. The media is working furiously to paint all of this as somehow illegal, authoritarian, dictatorial, mean. They're going to throw everything at Donald Trump's next term and try to make everything he attempts to do seem illegitimate in some way. They were reasonably successful with this in the first term in terms of public sentiment. People, by and large, did not understand that the media actually lies about everything. And there is a uniparty in this country and they have subverted our government. In fact, their intent is to subvert our government and allow the United States to be subsumed into this global order. People didn't realize that. So when the media called Donald Trump a threat to everything we've ever known, a lot of people went along with it, including myself for the first couple of years. Many of us believed that there were authoritative sources and that those sources didn't lie to us. And on the occasion that they did, well, they were still the only sources we could really depend on. Does it make sense? No, it doesn't really make sense. But that is the sort of thing that does make sense when you are experiencing total inversion within that false reality. So they're panicking about the elimination of the federal bureaucracy. They're panicking about potential exposure for the intelligence community, for the illegitimate Biden administration, and this special counsel who is engaged in these political prosecutions. And they are panicking about Donald Trump's willingness to invoke the Insurrection Act and use the United States military for its intended purpose, which is to uphold our Constitution and do whatever that might require. And it just so happens that it requires holding accountable Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of corrupt politicians and bureaucratic stooges who have engaged in this usurpation of the United States. But they are not only panicking at home, they are panicking abroad as well. They are panicking at the World Economic Forum. And we may get into some more of this next week, but I do want to hit just a couple of things. This was the big story from Wednesday night and all day yesterday. 
Donald Trump commenting in his speech from New Hampshire that he would never allow the implementation of a central bank digital currency. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Now, if you understand the globalist movement, if you understand the technocracy they are trying to bring about in the world, then this is nothing new. These things have been said at the World Economic Forum for a long time. But this is one piece of the social credit score. The social credit score interlocks with the central bank digital currency. If your score is too low, they can shut your money off. If you don't live the way you are expected to live, they can simply turn off your money so that you can't go buy things. They can make it so that certain currencies can only be used for certain things. I mean, if you don't own anything and you'll be happy, well, you will still have the place where you live, the small little apartment, or hey, maybe they just have you be roommates with somebody. But you have your little place and you have clothes and you have a job probably in the metaverse. And so they think, well, what else does this person need? This person doesn't need real money. They're not going to go out and buy other things anyway. They don't even need to go anywhere because we have this whole world that we've constructed for them inside their little pod. I mean, apartment. And at that point, they might as well just pay you in food credits. So rather than getting paid a check and you deciding where you want your money to go, what you want to do with it, do you want to invest? Do you want to buy yourself a treat? Do you want to spend it all on food? They make it so you don't have that choice. That money is for food. There is no other money. It's just that money. So go buy your food and be happy. You'll own nothing, but you'll be happy. And naturally, they can track Everything you do, everything you say, they know who you're around. They know what you're searching for on the internet. They know what you buy and what you eat and where you go. They know absolutely everything about you. And there is an incentive and punishment structure tied to each and every little bit of that. That interlocks with your central bank digital currency. And you damn well better behave according to their terms or else you can't buy anything. But hey, maybe they'll give you some food credits. Tonight, I'm also making another promise to protect Americans from government tyranny. As your president, I will never allow the creation of a central bank digital currency. You know about Now, some people are trying to frame this as something that Trump has just found out about from Vivek Ramaswamy, but that is obviously preposterous. Regardless, this was met with mass approval, including from the normie sphere. Standard issue villagers on the uniparty right, despite being standard issue villagers, have now pretty much adopted the notion that the central bank digital currency is a very bad idea. They are usually a good three to four years behind people like us. And of course, even at that point, we are still a good distance behind the people who are actually implementing all of this stuff. So they have finally figured out that CBDC's are bad, and now they understand that Trump is against them too, which is just the latest in a long series of examples of Donald Trump actually being the solution to many of the world's biggest problems, and this is certainly one of those. 
Fortune magazine's crypto division wrote an article about Trump's comments, seeming to argue that the whole CBDC thing is overblown. Sure, Trump's saying he's against them, but Joe Biden like hasn't even talked about them since 2022. They describe the CBDC this way. They say CBDCs are the digital versions of fiat money, in this case, the dollar, but exchanged via blockchains. Proponents of a U.S. CBDC argue that a digital dollar could be exchanged securely and less subject to the volatility often seen through the crypto ecosystem. Now, that is some serious sleight of hand there. Why would we be comparing a digital dollar to the sum total of all cryptocurrencies based on their volatility? Shouldn't we be comparing the digital dollar to just the dollar? Oh, wait, right now, our fiat currency, the dollar is kind of just a digital dollar anyway, but virtually no one has ever cared about the dollar's volatility. We don't even talk about the dollar in those terms. We just, oh yeah, we call it um, inflation. At some point, you have to begin questioning which parts of their system Donald Trump is not threatening to destroy. And it turns out there aren't any of those, which is why we're all such ardent Trump supporters. And we've been screaming that from the rooftops for years Now, people are beginning to understand that because all of their favorite characters on television who operate as information gatekeepers have caught up to where we were in the middle of 2020. But let's go really big picture. We're all told that we are conspiracy theorists for talking about the new world order and how we are adamantly opposed to the global order. We do not want a one world global government controlling what everyone everywhere does. That's not a democracy. That's not our democracy. That is feudalistic and totalitarian control over absolutely everything. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's what they're pitching. This is the illegitimate Biden administration's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. That order seems to know, know, uh, not be, uh, the order anymore. We are on the way to a new order. So we are between orders. Uh, do you agree with that? Or are there ways of uh, what are we able to keep on the positive side from the old order to bring into a new world order? And how can we avoid that that new world order uh, becomes like a jungle growing back and we rather uh, have a order based on international law and the uh, principles that have brought us prosperity and uh, freedom uh, for decades. I guess maybe this is the the old um, kind of teacher in me coming out. I think of this a little bit more about a transition of eras rather than a transition of orders, but the two are kind of cousins of one another. The reason I draw the distinction is because I don't think the international order built after 1945 is getting replaced wholesale with some new order. Um, It will obviously evolve as it it has evolved multiple times over the decades since 1945. But I do think in a a more sharp and distinctive way, we are moving into a new era. And that's what I talked about in my remarks, that we are, you know, the post-Cold War era has come to a close. We're at the start of something new. We have the capacity to shape what that looks like. And at the heart of it will be many of the core principles and core institutions of the existing order, adapted 
uh, for the challenges that we face today. So how about that? A world order that was put into place in 1945, right after World War II. Gosh, thank goodness that the good guys won World War II, huh? I mean, imagine the good guys didn't win World War II. Or imagine the good guys did win, but also they just let all those Nazis go all around the world and continue operating within governments. In fact, they help those Nazis infiltrate governments. And <laughs> imagine if the good guys totally won World War II and then allowed the Nazis into all of their science programs and told everybody that it was okay because of space shuttles. And imagine they just continued all their medical experimentation and all of their work on <laughs> creating uh, an advanced human species. And imagine that anytime anyone even questioned whether or not that stuff might have happened, even though they already tell us it did happen, they're called anti-Semitic. Gosh, thank, thank goodness the... Uh, the good guys uh, won World War II. And you know what? The way that we know for sure that the good guys won World War II is because we blasted the shit out of Japan with nuclear bombs. And there's no evidence that that's true. But to be sure, everyone heard it on the radio. And that's almost the same as proof. And hey, I know it's really upsetting whenever anyone suggests that nukes might not be real just because there's no proof that they are real and because the Manhattan Project was started at Bohemian Grove. But I know, I know they are super, super real, just like viruses and AI and climate change. They're all existential threats that are totally man-made and allow us to destroy the planet and all of humankind as if Men had become gods just through their ability to wield such power. But I know it's all very real. So the illegitimate president's national security advisor is suggesting that it's not going to be a total overthrow of the world order, which used to be the new world order. Now they are framing it. The new world order is whatever comes next, because, of course, that would be new. So any world order that is changed is a new world order. It's all very confusing. But Sullivan is saying that a lot of the apparatus would remain in place, but there could be some changes. Now, last year, we talked about how George Soros had handed the keys of the Soros operation off to his son, Alexander. Now, Alexander is young and retarded, and Alexander was also at the World Economic Forum, and he had this to say on a panel. The clip is two minutes and 24 seconds, but at least two minutes of it are him saying, um, or ah, or erm, or, you know. You know, I um, I don't think that that's the I don't think that that's the fundamental. I don't think the technology is the fundamental issue uh, in in democracy. Democracy is messy. I mean, you know, democracy is about contestation of ideas. It's about uh, plurality. Um, it's about people having different truths. Actually, now, mm. um, fundamentally, uh, how society lives together um, civically um, in those in those contestations. Um, is, you know, is obviously, uh, is obviously, um, you know, quite, uh, quite, uh, you know, quite tricky. But I think that if we play too much on this 
disinformation card. We're taking responsibility away from ourselves to actually create a narrative that inspires people to vote and to believe, uh, you know, in um, uh, in uh, in democracy and democratic um, institutions. And on the institutional part, I think that we can talk about uh, institutions as these abstract things, but institutions are also about people. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, um, you know, we just heard this, this this point about untrustworthy people, and we talked about things in the United States like you know, like um, checks and balances, which aren't written anywhere, but are customs. And one man, Donald Trump, literally came in and just took that, you know, took that, took that all away. Um, you know, so, um, you know, so, um, you know, but when I see this, you know, when I look at this, um, you know, um, you know, uh, more globally regarding, regarding, you know, regarding democracy, I also say to myself, when was this great time that everybody got along so well and, you know, Things were going so so great. I mean, I think you know, um, um, you know the, um, you know, I think that we really have to be careful here, in you know, in this nostalgia, uh, for a time, uh, you know, for a time past, because a lot of the reactions we're seeing in society are actually reactions to positive, uh, to positive things like, you know, like equality uh, for women, um, you know, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, and greater diversity, uh, which come with backlash. Now that, my friends, is one brain-dead son of a Nazi. Does that person sound brilliant? No. He sounds like an incompetent ne'er-do-well who would not be anywhere near a position of power were his dad not one of the most evil Nazis that has ever walked the earth. Now, as I said, Donald Trump is the tool to destroy all of it. Hence the panic. Hence the discussion. We were supposed to have moved on from Donald Trump. We were supposed to have moved on to Ron DeSantis or some other establishment Republican figure. None of this was supposed to be happening at all. Hillary Clinton was not supposed to lose. But here we are. And the goal is the goal. The standard is the standard. And we will have to rise to meet it. And here's Donald Trump letting us know who and what we are dealing with. Now, Biden is a threat to democracy. He's an absolute threat to democracy. He's very dangerous for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's grossly incompetent, which is the number one reason. But he's also actually in his own way. It's not him. It's the people that surround him. You got some very bad people surrounding him at that desk. You have people running the Department of Justice surrounding him. They're young and they're smart and they're communists and they're Marxists and they're fascists. And they're running this country. They're running it right into the ground. It has always only ever been that I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do. By signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And I'll see you soon 
out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!